0: Hey, pals, just so you know, this episode is chock full of amazing content, but we do get into a little bit of graphic content around the human body and around surgery. So if that is upsetting for you, feel free to skip those parts or this episode completely. Thanks so much. Welcome to Sex Ed with DB. I'm your host, Danielle Bezalow. Let's get into it. Welcome back to the podcast. If you love and support the work that we do, join my crew on Patreon to win amazing prizes like our adorable merch, exclusive behind-the-scenes content, private sessions with yours truly, and incredible sex toys. Go to patreon.com slash sexedwithdb to join my crew. Get discounts at all of my favorite brands at sexedwithdb.com. And follow us on Instagram at sexedwithdbpodcast and on TikTok at sexedwithdb. If you want to partner with us, Email us at sexedwithdb at gmail.com. Here are my top three favorite things I love about UberLube. Number one, UberLube makes sex feel a lot more pleasurable. It's as simple yet as powerful as that. Number two, UberLube is recommended by leading doctors, and its body friendly ingredient list is widely used by people with sensitivities to lubricants. And number three, UberLube will not stain clothing or bedding. Any spills can be easily cleaned with detergent and water. Get your bottle of UberLube now with code SEXEDWITHDB for 15% off at uberlube.com. What do I love about my Freya? The incredible razor and clitoral vibrator in one discreet product. Let me count the ways. I love that when I'm already in the shower getting clean, it's super easy for me to grab my Freya and give myself some serious lovin'. I love that I don't need to get out of bed, clean my toy, and get out of the mood. As soon as the mood strikes, my Freya is right there to play with. And I love the smooth, clean shave it gives. Use code DB to get 20% off your Freya. And for a limited time, enter to buy one Freya, get one for your bestie for free. Enter to win at highfreya.com slash sexedwithdb now. We talk a lot about sex ed, but when we're shopping for products to support our sexual wellness, exploration, and expression, we head to the experts at Lion's Den. For 50 plus years, Lion's Den has been a leader in adult products. Whether you want to explore a new kink or add a little romance to your evening, Lion's Den has something for all. Each location is brightly lit and staffed with the very best experts in pleasure, passion, and romance so you can feel comfortable and confident in your purchases. Lion's Den is offering our listeners 15% off your purchase in-store and online using code DB at lionsden.com. So you're ready to experiment with anal play, but you're not sure where to start. If I were you, I'd start with education and products by a company founded by a doctor who's an expert on anal sex. I'm talking about Future Method. Future Method develops science-backed products and doctor-led education to maximize pleasure, eliminate injury, and empower the way people choose to play in the bedroom. They even have a blog that puts education at the forefront on topics both popular and taboo. Use code SEXEDWITHDB for 15% off at futuremethod.com. Let's play a little fill-in-the-blank game where you have to guess what goes in the blank. Cosmopolitan magazine called The Blank the little black dress of vibrators, and Time magazine named The Blank among the top 10 most influential gadgets of all time. Even at 50 years old, The Blank is still turning heads as the most recommended and best-selling massage wand in America. Any guesses? The answer is The Magic Wand. It's loved by millions for a reason. It's powerful and hits all the right pleasure points. Want to see what all the fuss is about? Go to sexedwithdb.com slash magicwand to learn more and see how you could win your very own Magic Wand Rechargeable. Hello, Mom. Hi, Dan. How are (laughs) you? I'm really good. Happy, really good day. Really good day. We both had really good days because I got engaged yesterday um, (laughs) to my now fiance. And I am so excited to say that my mom was there holding really wonderful, say yes signs. And then after I said yes, she had other signs that said, she said
1: yes.
0: (laughs) And I was so shocked. And my partner and I have been dating for six years and it was just such a beautiful surprise. What did
1: you think about it, mom? I think it's really hard to surprise someone who every day thinks, when is this going to (laughs) happen?
0: I have, a feeling, it.
1: I have a feeling that was y- your thought process every day. And he and I were really able to put something together so that the one day that you weren't thinking it was going to happen, it happened. It and- really
0: did. I was so <laughs> surprised and I just felt so loved. And it was so nice to have my partner, my, p- my fiance, partner, fiance, partner, fiance's parents also there. And you were there and my little brother and my stepdad. And it felt like a really, really beautiful, special moment for all of us to share. And uh, I
1: just, yeah, I love you so much. I'm so glad that you were a part of that special <laughs> night. It was great. And it's great to now see like other people that are going to be part of our family really fitting in because they all lied about it and they all <laughs> deceived you <laughs> and they all thought it was really funny to do that. They're and are all tricksters. It was great because it was a really nice, romantic, fun evening. And, uh, you know, especially your younger brother, who is just an expert deceiver. He (laughs) really
0: got me, everybody. Um, I just didn't see it coming at all. And it's so fun to, you know, be a part of that process, whether that be the ring or, you know, the timeline or, you know, you're on the same page with your partner about like what you really want in life, but there is this like pressure of like, okay, well, when's the proposal going to happen and what's what's going (laughs) to happen? And I really did want to be surprised. And my fiance did that and it was so sweet. And it's so weird saying fiance. So French. (laughs) But mom, today we have you on, I think this is like probably your 10th episode at least with us. Maybe. (laughs) maybe <laughs> over the the course of the last couple seasons maybe even approaching 15 we'll have to count next time that you're on <laughs> but we are really excited to have you on today specifically to talk about FAQs for an OBGYN and we had our followers and our listeners write in questions that they were curious about. And I know that you and I were talking before this interview, they're really, really good questions. Mm-hmm. And I think it's something that people are really curious about and excited to hear your expert opinion on. And so for those of us who are listening, who haven't heard your other 13 plus episodes with us, <laughs> why don't you introduce yourself and tell us about your background
1: and your work and your specialty. Sure, my name is Dr. Rebecca Levy-Gantt. I'm Danielle's mom, which is my best job. But my other job is...
0: (laughs) And I have siblings, so she loves them too.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but they're not interviewing me. That's correct. Um, So I am an OBGYN in private practice. I've been an OBGYN for almost 30 years since my residency. And the last I would say eight to nine years, I've owned my own solo private practice here in Northern California. And I focus very much on midlife, perimenopause, and menopausal women. Although, until now, um, at least up till now, (laughs) I still do deliver babies. And that's been a great part of the whole thing. You know, as I'm getting older, that's going to be much less a part of it. But, you know, I love what I do. I have a really good relationship with my patients. The questions that you have, had your listeners uh, send in are definitely some of the things that I hear from my own patients all the time. And I think it's great to be able to have kind of a little dialogue about answering some things that people are curious about. Totally.
0: And as you've become more senior and tenured in your career, how has your specialty maybe shifted and changed over time of what you're focusing on now, maybe compared to what you were focusing on the beginning of your career?
1: Right. When you finish your residency, if you're a generalist, we call it in OBGYN, you pretty much do a quote unquote full scope OBGYN, which means you take care of pregnant people. You take care of their prenatal care, their deliveries, their postpartum care. And then you take care of women at all other walks of life, all the way from like young teenagers. I take care of Young girls who are having problems with their very first period or with PMS or need early contraception or hygiene instructions and things like that, all the way up through midlife and then menopause and postmenopause with hormone management and bladder management and all kinds of things. So full scope OBGYN is what I came out of my residency with. And I think as anybody in any career, I started realizing the things that I like more and I'm better at. And I think those things are very intertwined. I think the things that you like more, you just have a penchant to become better at. Mm. And the things that you're really not that interested in anymore, you kind of lose your taste for that and you, and you lose your expertise in that. So, you know, I did general surgery all the way up to about a couple of years ago. I mean, gynecologic surgery up to about a couple of years ago. I never really loved it. I love the procedures that I do in my office. I like putting in IUDs. I like dealing with complex um, biopsies and things like that that I can do. But I never really loved the whole idea of a major surgery and then worrying about complications and then taking care of people afterwards. So, a couple of years ago, I pretty much phased that out of my practice. And it hasn't made that much difference because someone comes to me and they need a major surgery. I can see them before the surgery, I refer them to someone I know to have the surgery. And then they come back to me after they're done with their post-op care. So the push in the practice has been towards more things that I'm that interested in. And I've become more expertise, more of an expert, I would say, in those things like menopause management. So I went to more courses and, you know, learned more about the specifics of menopause management. And I'm a certified menopause practitioner, which means I go every couple of years, take some classes, do a test and get recertified. So if somebody wants to find me as a menopause practitioner, they can find me on a, on a national, you know, website for that.
0: Gotcha. Awesome. Well, our listeners and followers know this because I've talked about you so much in so many of our episodes. And every time that I get the opportunity to interview you, but you just impress me more and more with the way that you are writing books and you are like, you just go after your passion and you're very talented and so good at so many of those things. And your patients really love you and trust you. And I couldn't think of a more inspirational person for me. So I'm really grateful to you for supporting me and encouraging me to do this work. And, you know, me being able to do sex ed with DB full time now has been the culmination of a lot of really hard work. But it really started at home when I was a kid and throughout college and being able to, to see you as that person who I can strive to be, maybe not to replace you because I'm not a doctor, but to work alongside you. And so it's really, really special.
1: Well, thank you. You have no idea how much that really means to me because it's really an amazing thing to watch one of your own, you know, your own child kind of grow up to be interested in what you're interested in to be. And it doesn't really matter what, that you're not a doctor. I mean, this field needs every kind of practitioner education, probably at the top of the list, you know, and making sure that people understand and know and are healthy in their choices and are educated. And you're doing that. And that really makes me proud and happy. (laughs) Enough with the emotion (laughs)
0: fast. And I'm engaged, guys.
1: A lot of tears have been shed the past 48
0: hours. Okay, let's get into the questions that we have from our followers today, right? And, you know, FAQs for an OBGYN. And here's the first one, which is very much a personal question to your own experience. But I'm also curious because we've talked about your med school experience and, you know, what led you to that. But the question here that's pretty specific is two part: one, how did you get into med school, and two, how did you stay motivated throughout it? I think like just as a context, I definitely have a lot of friends who are residents, and the burnout rate feels very real, and like the low pay that residents receive for doing a ton of work uh, and it's for eight to ten to more years that you're you're working like this, so I'm equally as curious as this listener.
1: (laughs) Yeah. One of the top problems in any uh, medical specialty right now is burnout. And it's for a whole host of issues. You know, most recently, the last few years of COVID and, you know, low pay and student loans and all that stuff. But if I can think back all the way back to when I was in medical school, I think my story is a little bit different than a lot of people's stories when they go into medical school because a lot of people go from college, they know they have to work really hard, do pre-meds, take their exams, and then get into medical school. And they're pretty young when they go into medical school and they kind of miss an entire portion of their lives to devote themselves to medicine. Mm -hmm. And then when they come out and that's all they know, and then they go straight to residency and they're still young, which sounds great to be young when you can be done with residency and then actually go into the real world. But in actuality, I think they're more likely to burn out because they didn't do things before medical school. In my situation, you know, not only did I have a different career before I went to medical school, I was actually married when I went into medical school and I had both your brother and you while I was in medical school. So I never really had that feeling of like medical school is my life. Because I had so much of a life outside of it, and most people who are in medical school, necessarily so have to devote all their time and energy to what's going on in medical school. And I do think it's probably a little bit better now because when I went, the first two years was all didactic. So you were in a classroom, we were you know, there was no internet at that time, so we had like the note taking club, you know, so that somebody would sit in a class and like take all the notes and then copy it and distribute it to everybody. so, everybody was constantly reading, reading and getting into groups. And that took all of your time, but I did not have a choice for that to take all of my time because by the time I was done with my second year of medical school, I had a baby and, you know, for good and for bad, I'm not recommending that as a, as as a way to go through medical school because it was really difficult, but it helped me to have more of a perspective that, Medical school and medical training was not all there was. I had this little human being to care for, and you know, look at people who just have a baby, and that's all they're doing. That's and they're exhausting. Not
0: going to and you're already <laughs> freaking tired.
1: It's exhausting, and you know, we went through a lot with you know you and your your brother while you were very little. And I think that's the thing that I would would absolutely tell to people now: keep it in perspective that. The only people who really should be going to medical school, in my opinion, are people who have a real passion for it. Not like maybe in in the past, you thought you could get out of the money. Yeah, or something like that. That's just not, it doesn't happen like that anymore. So, yes, you can make money in some areas of medicine for sure, but you have to have the passion for it and you have to realize that it's not the only thing. And that's really served me well because going all the way through all of that and getting out and all the training that it took, always having other stuff that I had to do made me feel like it wasn't a thing to burn out in medical school. It was just something I had to go through to get to where I wanted, where my passion really was. And now finding some passion in other things, like you said, I'm I'm writing, I do a lot of teaching, all of that stuff is also keeping it in perspective it is important to educate other people on you know the things that i know it's important to you know write and let people read the things that they want to know about and doing the interviews like this and giving people information that's all other things that i can do that wouldn't really allow me to burn out because I'm just exhausted in doing the same thing over and over again. You know, keeping the variety in what you do is a really big issue, I think, for medical school and then afterwards as well.
0: Right, like being able to stay well-rounded somehow, even though there's this large amount of work that you're constantly having to do. So maybe it is like, you know, making time for yoga or painting or like whatever that you do on the side that like lets you release. I feel like that I'm sure like is a major difference. And we have so many other questions, but (laughs) listener, how she got into medical school, she's brilliant. She's very smart. She also, as she said, got another, she had another career. She was a physical therapist. She had a master's in physical therapy before she went to med school. She did all of her prereqs. She worked really, really hard in school. And I know that there's a story too about grandpa, your late dad, who I didn't get to meet. Unfortunately, he passed away before I was born who said, you know, like, hey, if you want to be a doctor, like that's the one thing that I really want you to do. And (laughs) I'm sure part of your journey and dream to do that was super wrapped up in like his opinion of you and like the way in which that he saw success and you being able to
1: fulfill that lifelong dream of his. Yeah. Well, like in any career, if someone else tells you, you should really do this and you don't have the, (laughs) I didn't think I had the strength or the smarts, to really do it myself. I didn't believe in myself enough to do that, but he was like, that's what you need to do. And I really thought about that a lot before I made that decision, but yeah, it was partly due to his encouragement, I would say.
0: premium razor and a clitoral vibrator in one discrete product? What? Why hasn't that been thought of before? Well, Freya did. So you've had a long day and all you want to do is take a flight to Pleasure Town, but ugh, you have to shave before a busy day tomorrow. The game plan? Get an amazing shave with Freya's premium razor filled with aloe and vitamin E shave soap. You can subscribe the replaceable blades for just $9.99 for a four pack. And then, okay, ready for this? Remove the razor head, Hang it on the wall holder, click the power button, and use the handle as a clitoral vibrator. Freya just put the genius in G-Spot. Use code SEXHEADWITHDB to get 20% off your Freya now. And for a limited time, you can enter to buy one Freya and get one for your bestie for free. Enter to win at highfreya.com slash sexheadwithdb now. Let me tell you about one of my favorite sex toy shops out there, Lion's Den. If you haven't heard about Lion's Den before, I can't wait to tell you all about them. Lion's Den first opened its retail facility in Columbus, Ohio in 1971. That's right, over 50 years ago. Since then, they have grown to more than 50 outlets throughout the U.S., building its reputation on high-quality products, low prices, and a knowledgeable sales staff. Their staff are also sexual wellness experts who can help you find the perfect toy. One of the many things I love about Lion's Den is that they advocate for a sex-positive perspective on intimacy and sexual well-being and strive to break the stereotypes and stigma surrounding sex by providing comprehensive educational resources to empower everyone to enjoy life to the fullest. They're simply amazing. Lucky for you, Lions Den is giving my listeners an exclusive discount of 15% off your purchase in-store and online with code SEXEDWITHDB at lionsden.com. What are you waiting for? Get your amazing Lions Den toy now. Finally, we can travel again. If you're like me, I bet you want a little pleasure while you're away, but can't fit your entire sex toy collection in your carry-on, huh? Say hello to the Magic Wand Mini. Born into such a famous family, this little wand has quite a reputation to uphold. Challenge accepted. Offering big power, multiple speeds, and unsurpassed quality, the full-featured Magic Wand Mini is more than simply a smaller sibling. It's here to create a legacy all its own. Want to win a Magic Wand Mini for your next trip or staycation? Go to sexedwithdb.com magicwand to learn more. Let's talk about butt acne. Not what you expected me to say, huh? Well, we're here now, so let's get into it. I personally struggle with butt acne and it really brings down my self-confidence sometimes. One thing that has really helped me is the Butt and Body Scrub by Future Method. Future Method is science-backed and doctor-led, so I know I can trust them. Their quick and gentle exfoliating booty scrub cleanser is great to use on your body and between your butt cheeks. Its doctor-approved ingredients are infused with a refreshing and invigorating hit of citrus, clove, and cedar to soften, smooth, and tone your skin. Get yours now at futuremethod.com and use code sexed with DB for 15% off at checkout. Let's talk about a lube I absolutely love Uberlube. Uberlube makes sex better for everyone by reducing friction and increasing pleasure. Whether you're using it for solo sex, sex with a partner, or both, Uberlube has a long lasting performance that lets skin feel skin. It has simple, body and condom friendly ingredients, is scent and color free dissipates when no longer needed so there's no sticky residue and is recommended by leading doctors. Use code SEXEDWITHDB for 15% off at uberloop.com. Okay, so the next question is specifically about abortion and Roe v. Wade being overturned. So the question is how do you and some of your colleagues who maybe you work with or have, you know, chatted with since, you know, Roe v. Wade was overturned, what has changed? How have you been navigating that situation when it comes to giving care post-dobbs in this situation and what what are some of
1: the challenges that have come up for you? Well, you know, we live in California, so we're lucky kind of in this way that Compared to a lot of places in the rest of the country, we're kind of in a little bit of a bubble. Although not everywhere in California, there are about probably forty percent of counties in California don't really have readily available and close services for them that they could just go into a clinic and you know receive uh, abortion care. So it's kind of one thing in states where the restrictions are have really been put in place, and I have a lot of colleagues all over the country that have extremely sad stories of, you know, a woman goes into the emergency room because she's bleeding. They find out that she has an ectopic pregnancy, which is a pregnancy either in the tubes or somewhere outside the uterus growing where it's not supposed to be. And not only is that impossible to turn into a viable nine-month pregnancy or grow to be anything that's going to become a normal delivery at any point, it's also really dangerous for the woman who's carrying that So the scenarios are happening where if there's still a heartbeat, the doctors or the health practitioners' hands are tied and it's already happening that people have ended up in the ICU from hemorrhaging, people have died because of that. And this is where you really get the idea that why is it that people who are making those kind of laws are not scientists, are not doctors, are not medical professionals in any way that People could even say things that politicians have said things about reimplanting an ectopic pregnancy into a uterus to make it viable. That's not even a thing. <laughs> I mean, that that's not possible to happen. So for people to be parading those kind of things around as if if you only tried hard enough or something, you could save this baby and this mother. All kinds of scenarios. It's really terrible. What I see in California and what I've heard from colleagues in California, because I I do have friends who are clinicians at Planned Parenthood and at other federally qualified health centers, their volume has just exponentially gone up that if they used to do, let's say, you know, 40 terminations or abortion care cases in a week. Now they're doing 120 or 200. Wow. Because people are coming from other states. And one of the things that has very much changed is that they are doing telemedicine for medical abortions. You know, medical abortions are incredibly safe. People don't really understand the term medical abortion. They don't realize sometimes that you can take medication up to a certain number of days or weeks of pregnancy and you can have what essentially is a miscarriage of that pregnancy material in your own home. But of course, there are always explanations and complications and you know post-instructions and things. So the counseling has to be there. And unfortunately, when the volume is so high and they might not have enough practitioners to deal with the volume, inevitably, some of that counseling gets missed. Some of these people end up in emergency rooms. Some of them end up needing procedures. So- it's mostly at least here been a volume thing in in a lot of the rest of the country it's been a danger thing and an right. ethical thing the difference where we live or in northern california in general is that you know in places that have higher populations and better medical care like san francisco you could pretty much go to many different places for the care but because the volume has so increased you still may wait you still may not have your Care as early as it would be safe to have the care. So things are happening much later. And when people have terminations later than they originally would have, that makes it more dangerous for them, more bleeding, more more possibility of infection, more expensive. So, yeah, it's going in a very bad direction. And the good news, a little bit, is that in a lot of these places where they've tried to put in very strict regulations about it, we're seeing little by little, like lower courts overturn that and saying, no, you can't put a complete ban after six weeks or something like that. But the ridiculousness of it is just wherever you go, there's a different rule. Wherever you know you go, you have to pay attention to what is it today? What is it this week? What is it? Exactly. They're
0: changing all the time. It's really hard. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. There have been a couple of reports that have recently come out from research organizations for reproductive health. I know A-N-S-I-R-H answer is one of them. I think I I saw a study with the headline, like, oh, you know, abortion across the country is decreasing dramatically because of this lack of access. Right. It's not like people don't need them, it's just that they're not getting them. Right. Because they can't, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever they need to do, take the time off to travel to a different state, wherever they are, they don't have a clinic or they, they have surpassed the amount of weeks that they can use medication abortion. And therefore, it gets more challenging for them. But yeah, there's going to be a lot. And there already has been like just so much of a detrimental impact um, to so many people.
1: And, you know, people have always had some kind of wrong impression about like, yes, people are just using this as birth control or people are just saying they want to do this all the way up to the ninth month of pregnancy. Almost no termination care happens late in pregnancy in the third trimester. And if it does, it's almost always for a reason of some deadly or lethal fetal anomaly, where that baby was not going to live, has a terrible chromosomal abnormality, something that was discovered very late. And those decisions are not easy. And And they're nobody else's business. That's right. It's really only, and I've seen it because I've, you know, I work in several other arenas like for telehealth and things like that. And stories that I've heard of people, somebody, you know, at 25 weeks whose water was broken, who nobody where she lived would help her to end that pregnancy, which was going to infect her anyway, which she was getting infected, got on a plane and traveled somewhere wow. else so she could get care. It's just, you know, it's, it's really insane and unethical and sad. Totally. Yeah, and It's and human rights other violations. Con- yeah. The other consequence is that people in residency are not getting trained to deal with these things and with their complications. So there will be fewer and fewer available practitioners. And maybe, you know, maybe that's something that the anti-abortion people really would like, that if nobody's really trained in it, then maybe you can't do it anymore. But what they don't understand is that people are always going to people need abortion do it anyway. care. Yeah. People are gonna need care. You and know? it is
0: really, it's a similar kind of like, it's analogous, I think, to like ab-only education, right? Because if Mm -hmm. like you just don't teach anybody, then there's this idea, it'll just go away. Just pretend like it doesn't happen. And the whole population of
1: women will go away, you know? Right. It's just, Mm -hmm. it is just, yeah, Mm -hmm. the
0: complete opposite of that. Like people have sex, people get abortions, people figure out their own care if like the government is like going to be against them. Right. But yeah. Well, that's,
1: especially with these new rules of like, sometimes you can only do it if the life of the mother's in jeopardy. And then that's so vague that if right. somebody is in your emergency room, who's the one who makes that decision? It's not in jeopardy enough. You're not that close to death. So we're not going to do anything. I know. It's and then it's insane. just subjective
0: because becomes like the decision of the person who has all these biases maybe. And uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay.
1: It's terrible. So yeah, it, it hasn't affected personally, my practice as much, although I do a lot of care for people in early pregnancy, as far as decision-making and, you know, early ultrasounds. And, you know, unfortunately in my community, there isn't a hospital that can take care of complications of the termination. So they have to go out of this town to, you know, complete their care, which is crazy. Also, while
0: considering it's literally Napa, California. Mm -hmm mom we we must move on there are so okay. many other questions okay um mm-hmm. okay this person wants to know what is quote unquote normal post hysterectomy aka after the uterus has been removed from a body and this person has specifically asked about all things discharge
1: sex etc okay it's kind of impossible to lump that whole thing in just one answer like you'll have discharge don't have sex like sure you can't really say that so let me just go backtrack a little bit because I hear all the time, I would say probably every day, a little bit of misnomer from patients who come in talking about hysterectomy because hysterectomy, quote unquote, as you said, is the removal of the uterus, period. That's all it is. It doesn't take into account your tubes, your ovaries, or any other surgery. Now, As far as what types of hysterectomy people can have, people can have what's called a complete hysterectomy, which involves taking out the uterus and also the cervix, which is attached to the uterus. But as far as complications, problems, and cancers is actually a separate organ. Like you get your pap smear on your cervix and that pap smear only tells you about cervical cancer. It doesn't tell you about what's going on inside the uterus because inside the uterus, it's a different kind of cells, different histology, different possible complications. So if the uterus and cervix, which are attached, are both removed, that's a hysterectomy. Sometimes, people leave the cervix in. Now it's not separate from the uterus. So if you remove the uterus, but leave the cervix in, just imagine that that involves cutting in between where the cervix and the uterus is in order to leave that cervix in place. And people leave it in place for all kinds of different reasons. Some people feel like if that's not part of my problem, in other words, if they were having heavy bleeding or they have fibroids or some reason they want to take out their uterus, but they don't want their cervix out, they can have a supra. Cervical hysterectomy, just remove the uterus. But most people who have the uterus taken out have the uterus and cervix removed. Now, if that happens, so what happens in the vagina? The vagina then is what we call a blind pouch, right? There's nothing at the end of it. The way right now, let's say if you have your cervix or your cervix and uterus, you feel the cervix at the end of the tunnel of the vagina. So if someone doesn't have a cervix anymore and that vagina is just a blind pouch, there really isn't anywhere from above that discharge should be coming from. You could have a vaginal infection or a vaginal problem or some reason that some kind of moisture or discharge would be coming from the vaginal walls or the vaginal cells, but there's no place above that discharge should be coming from because that's a now a blind pouch. Now, if someone has their ovaries removed, that is an additional surgery called a bilateral removal of ovaries. So bilateral oophorectomy is really what it's called medically. And that's a, a kind of a different animal as far as what happens afterwards, because the ovaries are where all the hormones come from. The ovaries are what keeps you from being in menopause if you have ovarian function. So if you're in your 40s or before the age of natural menopause, which is around 51 or 52, and you have the uterus removed and you leave the ovaries in, then you won't go into menopause because menopause is a function of the ovaries not working anymore or not being there. So as far as what to expect afterwards, if you weren't in menopause before and you have your ovaries in, you won't be in menopause after either and you shouldn't really feel any different hormonally. In other words, you shouldn't suddenly start having hot flashes or anything like that. So as far as sex is concerned, if you have your ovaries and you just had your uterus taken out, as far as when to return to it, it should be whenever the doctor says that vaginal area is healed after your surgery. Now, if you had your ovaries taken out and that put you into what we call a surgical menopause, so no more ovaries, no more hormones, you're in menopause. That may make a difference in sexual functioning because without estrogen, then that vaginal tissue might get a little drier, which Mm -hmm. happens in most women in menopause. And as far as sex is concerned, you might want to be, if you're a candidate, you might want to be using something vaginally to keep that vaginal tissue healthy and moist and lubricated, etc. And you still might want to use a lubricant for sex. But as far as when It's mostly when everything is healed. That's about six weeks after a surgery, depending. Now, you know, I can't speak for all surgeries, but a basic hysterectomy where everything heals, there's no infection, no hemorrhage, no complications, about six weeks afterwards.
0: Is there a situation where the ovaries and the uterus would be taken out, but the tubes would would not be taken out? Or is that kind of like if the ovaries go, then the tubes go?
1: As a matter of fact, the tubes are something that should always go in any hysterectomy. And the reason for that is that we now know, which is fairly recent in the scheme of science, we now know that most ovarian cancer originates in the fallopian tubes. So even, let's say, during a C section, if there's somebody who says, Oh, I want to have a tubal ligation during my C section, like I want you to interrupt my tubes, a lot of people say tubes tied, but there's no tying, we don't tie anything. But now what we do is we remove the tubes. At a C-section if somebody wants a sterilization because removing the tubes decreases their future chances of ovarian cancer by quite a mm. bit. That makes sense.
0: So mm-hmm. what if like a 20-year-old needs to have a hysterectomy, like a, a total hysterectomy, right? Like the ovaries, the uterus, cer- and cervix, the cervix, right. Mm-hmm. right. Okay. So the total hysterectomy, meaning the, the uterus and the cervix go, as mm-hmm. well as the fallopian tubes and the ovaries, right?
1: That wouldn't happen, right? The only reason to take ovaries out in someone so young would yeah. be if there's something cancerous about them, right? If
0: they ha- if they do have cancer or some sort right. of right. thing that you know that that happened mm-hmm. to them at that age. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying yeah, it's a, maybe mm-hmm. an abnormal situation or atypical, but maybe that happens mm-hmm. with the menopause. Would that 20 year old person then for the rest of their life be in menopause? Yes
1: does that happen to people? Yeah, because, well, there's two ways that people go into menopause like suddenly and before they would have naturally gone into menopause. One is if a young person, like you said, 20s, 30s, they have ovarian cancer or some reason why the ovaries need to be removed. As soon as those ovaries come out, that person is in menopause. Now that person's in surgical menopause or premature surgical menopause because it's happening much, earlier than their natural menopause would have been. But yes, the function never comes back. So that's a person that if they're a candidate for it, they should have replacement of the hormones that are now missing because they don't have their ovaries. Luckily, we have safe ways to do that, although not everybody's a candidate for it. And Mm -hmm. that, that would be special circumstances. But there's another way that people can go into premature menopause. And there's actually kind of an autoimmune situation where You know, an autoimmune disease is when your own body creates antibodies or creates something that fights a certain organ or a certain tissue in your body, like your thyroid or your ovaries. And you can have premature ovarian failure, which means that's menopause, but way before you would have had it on your own. So Mm. someone who's 40 suddenly stops having periods and they're not pregnant. And their ovaries are not working anymore for whatever reason, autoimmune or whatever other condition, they are then in menopause and that's for the rest of their life too. Wow. Wow.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think we've talked about this previously, but like with menopause or hysterectomies, right? Like if it's not a medical experience that we are directly experiencing, then there it's really rare for us to then go seek that information out. Like right. unless that's happening to you, you right. don't really know like what exactly right. would happen to your body because it's not right. presented
1: to you. And people don't know. And and I'm I'm sorry to say that many people have had hysterectomies, and they'll come into my office as a new patient, sixty years old, fifty years old, say I had a hysterectomy, and I will always ask what exactly was removed? Because, And it's not because they're dumb people. Right. It's because the entire explanation of, it could be the uterus, it could be the uterus and cervix. We could then also do an oophorectomy. We might've taken your tubes. That should be kind of, you know, me, I sketch it out. You sure. know, so if I'm explaining that Point to somebody. to the map yeah, of exactly. what's missing on your body <laughs> or in your body. So And they don't know. Almost everyone says, I think I still have my ovaries. I'm not sure. And then the way that I know, because people think once they have a hysterectomy, since they're not bleeding anymore, they must be in menopause. But that's not the definition of menopause. Menopause is when your ovaries stop functioning. So here's a scenario. Someone has a hysterectomy before the age of menopause. They leave their ovaries in. They're 45. So they don't bleed anymore, but they're not menopausal. When do we know they're menopausal? Few years later, they're going to start having hot flashes. Most likely, yeah. Then they're in menopause, and you know, and their you ovaries
0: are stopping, their stopping function.
1: function, and you don't have a marker because the marker for most people that they're in menopause is that their periods stop. Wow.
0: So you, yeah,
1: yeah, it's pretty amazing, right? Like someone has said to me, well, I say, well, when was your last period? Well, I must be in menopause because I had a hysterectomy when I was forty. Did you hot flash when you got off the table? No, you weren't in menopause then. You went into menopause when your ovaries stopped working. So this is, I mean, really really important information, yeah, right? Because the reason people kind of need to know when it was that they went into menopause because menopause brings a whole host of other things that you have to be looking out for. Like what about your bones? What about your brain function? What about your heart function? Things change when you don't have estrogen in your body anymore. And estrogen replacement is not for everybody but people should know whether or not that's something that they should do or need or you know take part in.
0: Fascinating. Yeah, I had no idea about that.
1: I've had a few very sad cases of very young women who suddenly stopped having periods. And like you think, okay, your ovaries are probably not functioning well, let's do some tests. If you do a certain test, you can find out whether they're functioning at all or ever will function again. And the saddest news of all is to tell like a, a 28 or 29 year old person yeah, the reason you're not seeing periods is because you have no more ovarian function left. They can wow. never get pregnant on their own. Right. So that's difficult, but rare.
0: Right. And something that you, again, don't know until you're experiencing it yourself and then mm-hmm. have to consult a doctor or medical professional to learn more about right. it. The
1: only people that are pretty well-schooled in that, let's say a young woman has cancer, some other kind of cancer, lymphoma or something like that, and they undergo chemo. They're pretty well-schooled in the fact that once they start their chemo, they possibly will go into menopause because chemo might affect your ovaries. Oh, and I've wow. had several young women who were told that, well-educated, then froze their eggs so oh, that they could smart. have them for later on. Yeah. Now I have a few people, two people, as a matter of fact, who froze their eggs and now pregnant with Another those eggs. they pregnant. Yeah. Because that's they- a, That's a success
0: story. <laughs> yeah.
1: Underwent, well, they're still pregnant, so we not sure about oh, the success yet. Yeah. Knock on with. Yes. Yeah, well, just so, the fact but, that
0: they, you know, had the, had the insight. foresight, yes. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Foresight to to freeze mm-hmm. their eggs as a possibility. And yeah, we talked about this at like dinner or lunch the other day. It's <laughs> like whatever egg freezing is not a surefire thing. Like freezing embryos are like much more likely to take than just the egg and doing IVF. We have Way more questions. We're definitely going to have to do a part two to this episode, yeah, also that was my because suggestion. <laughs> I know you're you're you know you're at it again, Mom. you you know what's up this <laughs> This is a lot of really good stuff. I think that like people who are listening, hopefully are gaining a lot as I am. Another personal experience of someone, they want to know how long is pain from a perineum tear normal? Is there anything to lessen it? And for our listeners who don't know what a perineum is or what a perineum tear is, what is this?
1: Okay. This may take the rest of our time. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, and that's the show. Yeah. And I also, I'm going to throw in a little personal experience on this one as well. Please. Anyway, so the perineum is the name for the area of your body that is right between the vaginal opening and the anus. So it's kind of the area at which if you give birth, the baby passes over that area. Now for most People having a first baby, they don't have a lot of extensibility in that area. It's not very elastic. The muscles are kind of tight. You know, a baby is a big object to pass through a small area. So I would say almost everyone, upwards of 90% of women having their first baby, end up with a tear to that area. So let's back up a little bit. In the olden days when I was training and all the gynecologists were men when someone was giving birth, it was exactly standard of care to cut that area while the baby was emerging, because you would see it with your own eyes that the baby's head is about to come out and that area between the vagina and the anal area is going to tear. It's like inevitable. So the thought behind making some more room to that area would be to cut that area with good anesthesia always from what I have done in in, in the past Mm -hmm. to make more room. And this way it was felt that, you know, picture like a piece of material. If you cut it, then when you go to stitch it back together, those edges are smooth. They're clean. You're putting the layers back together uh, the way that they should be. But that really went out of favor years ago. And I can't really say that I know anybody, even old men, (laughs) physicians who standardly cut an episiotomy anymore. I can probably count on one hand, the number that I've done in the past like five years or so, but I can't say I never do it because sometimes I do see, you know, the patient is pushing for many, many hours. And the only thing keeping that baby from coming out is the fact that the area is too small. And she's exhausted, and I will always ask in that case, do you want me to make some more room so that the baby will come out on the next push? And if they don't want it, I certainly wouldn't do it. So in that case, if there's no cut, almost everybody will tear. And, you know, we have a lot of techniques to try to minimize that. We try to, you know, stretch the area or oil it up or, you know, there's a a lot of kind of wives' tale kind of things. You can use baby shampoo in the area, or you could use, um, you know, mineral oil. We use all these things while somebody is pushing. To like make it stretch? Well, it doesn't really make it stretch. It kind of, it's the pushing process along with that, that makes it stretch. But what about people that don't have kind of hours of pushing? Like, and here's my personal experience. I delivered your brother, who was my first baby in the triage area of the hospital in two pushes. Like I went in thinking oh this labor pain is just incredibly you know going to kill me and i went in saying please give me something for the pain <laughs> not not in that kind of calm voice <laughs> and they were like no just push and out came jacob and ugh, that was terrible you know because there's no there was no time to make the area better or stretchy mm. or oily or anything like that. It, I mean, it wasn't even I mean, was it like the bed. most
0: pain that you've ever felt in your whole yeah, life?
1: It was like for 10 seconds of terrible searing pain and yeah. then for months afterwards. Oh, like really? Months and months afterwards. So when you're talking about how long someone should have pain for, the amount of pain is completely dependent on two things how much you were able to stretch the tissues when the pushing was going on and how fast the baby came out sorry three things and how bad the tear is when mm-hmm. it happens because there's a lot of layers of tissue like when you look at it on the outside you just see skin but underneath the skin are muscles and ligaments and layers of fat and you know tissue and you know vaginal mucosa there's so many layers there that depending on how many layers tear through, that's how we label the tear. If it's a first degree tear, it only went through that vaginal mucosa. And that usually happens in my deliveries anyway, like on a second or third baby, they barely tear a little bit. It's just in the vagina. Sometimes you don't even have to repair it because it's not bleeding and it's not separated. If it goes through the vaginal mucosa and partially into the tissue underneath there, the various tissues, it's a second degree if it completely tears the muscle tissue around the anus which is a circular muscle that is right underneath that area it's a third degree and if the tear goes all the way into the rectum it's a fourth degree and fourth degree tears they take much longer to repair you have to have somebody who God, really knows what they're doing just like
0: clenching yeah. <laughs> and thinking about that
1: but you know that's what you don't want and that's the thing about now that nobody cuts any episiotomies anymore we do see more fourth degree tears because if you don't cut anything and you don't relieve any of the pressure and somebody's pushing and they just have a really big baby with a big head and a small vagina and it's a first baby, tears right through in spite of, you know, I'm right at that perineum using all my techniques and knock wood, I haven't had a fourth degree tear in many years, but you know, you can get all kinds of tears. So if you get a a perineal tear that is small easily repairable and you use the measures afterwards like ice packs and and you know anesthetic cream and things like that you know you're talking maybe 4 to 6 weeks but the deeper and the more involved the cut or, or the tear yeah. the more in, the more pushing the more damage you know it can be pretty bad and you know there's this trend now towards people wanting to push and push and push and push until they push their baby out which you know, it's all about shared decision-making. If the baby's still okay, you could push pretty much as long as you want, but not realizing that down the the road, years down the road, yes, your pelvic floor really gets damaged. And now, since I do mostly menopause now, when I see a really bad looking perineum, you always go, how big were your babies? Because, oh yeah, I had a 10 pound baby. Okay. You can blame him for what's going on down here. So it's terrible because, you know, that pelvic floor function is so important for the rest of your life that, you know, I've had people come to me and say, I don't want to push a baby out of there. Just please do a C-section. I was just going
0: to ask, like, is that, I know that we've talked about this in public health school and some of my programs and my like maternal mortality classes about like, the issue with maybe overscheduling C-sections and the problem with that. So that being said, though, is there a case for someone to, you know, want to have a C-section for their choice, sure. And for fear that their pelvic floor and their perineum and butthole specifically and vagina obviously
1: will suffer potentially for a long time. Well, to tell you the truth, they don't even have to voice that fear to me. If somebody comes in and says, I want I it. know myself. Yeah. I don't want to push a baby out that way. I want a C-section. Then, of course, it's their decision with appropriate counseling. Right. Because, you know, a C-section is major surgery. There, It does right. come with more complications and possible risks. So as long as they're well-counseled and I feel that they're understanding the counseling that I'm giving them. Yeah. I have no problem with that. Can I make a small plug? I have a, a nice story about that in my second Please book. Please do. Yeah, <laughs> I did write a book that's called Motherhood, Medicine, Medicine and, and Me. Medicine, and Me. hmm and that tells not only the story of- Buy now on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> not only the story of all of my kids' births, including you, but about the story of a, wo- a young woman who came in and told me she had been to several doctors who said, you know, no, I don't do that C-section C- C- on demand. And I said, as long as I feel you're appropriately counseled, of course I would. And I'm not going to reveal the end of the story. But, you know, oh I, I just wanted to say that that it's you don't even have to prove to me, like, show me you have a small perineum or, you know, you're worried about it. You don't have to do that. It, this is a decision that someone can make because they know themselves and they know what they would prefer and they're not comfortable with a vaginal delivery. You know, that's very rare that someone comes in asking about that. The trend is more like, I want at all costs to avoid a C-section, right? you know, but, um, Yeah. yeah, of course I would do it. Yeah.
0: Yes. I just think for myself, I know that I want kids and I have had that thought of like, okay, if there is this like severe damage, because it's so unpredictable, like how big the baby will be and how my body will react. And pelvic floor pain is something that I have experienced just without having a pregnancy and a child. And it's it's extremely painful and uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And if a C-section is, you know, the right thing for me down the line, if and when it comes to that, then it does make sense to seriously consider that based on like the facts of what actually is, you know, possible.
1: I think that is where it is so key and also so sad that it's not happening much anymore that you need to know the person who's going to deliver you. Mm. Because I have that conversation with my patients all the time about what their tolerance is as far as, you know, let's put a scenario out there. You're in labor, you're pushing and you've been pushing for two hours. And I look at you, I know you, and I go, you know what? You could keep pushing, but looking at the scenario and where the baby is now compared to the strength of your pushes and the position and everything, I don't think you're going to push this baby out. So to push for another hour or two or three is probably not the best idea. What do you think you'd want to do in that scenario? You know, so I know my patients by the time we get there, we've ha- I've had this exact scenario multiple times. And yes, I'll be happy to sit there and push with them as long as the baby's okay and they're okay. But, you know, just think about pushing with all your strength. Think about being constipated for two hours and three hours and pushing with everything you've got for all that time. Yes. Have I had people push for three hours and then finally push a baby out? Yes. Yes. Have I had people push out, push and push and push and then end up with a C-section anyway because they didn't want to stop pushing and then want to accept that it wasn't going to happen? Yes. Nobody has a crystal ball, but I do have 30 years of experience and I do try (laughs) to do that, you know, not to push somebody to do something they don't want to do, but to say, you know, here's the scenario. And luckily I would say nine out of 10 of my patients go, I know you, I trust you. I think we should go this route, you know? And if I really think, I think you just need to push harder. Then we do that as well. So, but you right. know, you have to weigh all the aspects of this. and the one of the big, unfortunate things is that people don't know who's going to deliver them a lot of the time in these big conglomerate hospitals or big groups. You go in and whoever's on call delivers you. You may have never met them. And that's a real loss for obstetrics, you know, that that people don't have the relationship with their doctors. I mean, some do, but it's it's less and less because of you know, people leaving the profession and people wanting to work in big groups so that they don't have to be killed and burned out like we were talking about at the beginning. Yeah. So that's kind of a sad thing to see that happening, but that is an important part of making your decisions when you're in labor.
0: But, and we can close on this before I encourage you listener to go to part two when we have, because we have so many more questions and have spent so much time talking about the ones that we've answered already, but I, I want to keep on going. So we're definitely going to have a part two to this episode. But I just want to say, like, you do really pride yourself for good reason on having such a strong and close relationship with the people that you deliver. And that's why they come back to you again and again for their second baby, for their third baby. And, you know, I'd love to close this part one by saying you are stopping you know, not for good, you said you're going to sub in here and there, but the OB part of your practice next year in the coming months, and so I'm wondering if you can reflect a little bit on like what has been the best part about delivering babies, and what are you going to miss
1: I think the best part and what I'm really going to miss is that even having delivered thousands of babies, oh even having done this for so many years I still have that feeling that every delivery is different, that this is a unique experience for this person. And I have to say that almost all the time, the moment of delivery still makes me teary-eyed, still makes me feel like, oh my God, this is so cool. (laughs) And The unfortunate thing is, I mean, I'm older now. I have grandchildren and you know, I want to be around for them and I You have a wedding to plan. uh, Mine. Just kidding. Thank you. Yes. That will take up a lot of my time over the next two (laughs) years or something like that. No, maybe that wedding anyway. I don't Uh, know. We'll see. (laughs) Go to part two. (laughs) Anyway, but that is what I'm gonna miss, that relationship that you get and that feeling that you get that when someone walks away from it, when a patient walks away from it going, that was a great experience. Because you know in the ether out there there are so many people walking around who are damaged and PTSD from their deliveries, who had real trauma from their deliveries. And I can't say my patients never have that because things happen. Right. It's just that if you feel like you have a relationship with the person who's taking care of you and for a patient to say to me afterwards, like, I knew things were bad, but I just looked at you and I knew I was gonna be okay, you know, to hear that after this many years of doing it and for it to still affect me that way. I am going to miss that, but the unfortunate part of it is that in between those things, we now have many unhealthy patients and many patients who are so high risk, and there's so much pressure to you know, have the perfect delivery and the hospital Mm. pressures you that if you do too many C-sections, they put you on a a bad list, which I'm on that list for sure. You know, not because I do too many C-sections, but because I don't look at the list and go, oh, let's keep pushing because the list says I should deliver you. You know, I do what's good for the patient. So I don't care really about the C-section (laughs) rate. So I'm going to miss the good parts of it, you know, and there've been a lot of them.
0: And you are still going to be doing the gyno and you're still writing more books, stay tuned for that. And we're going to do like an outro at the end of part two. So for now, I'll just say, I love you. Thank you so much (laughs) for being here with me and you're the best. I just really appreciate you. No,
1: you're the best. (laughs) Love you. Our creator, host,
0: and executive producer is me, Danielle Bezalel, a.k.a. DB. Our co-producer and communications lead is Catherine Cohen. Our co-producer is Brian Peoples. Our social media intern is Sarah Kelly. Our music theme is by Hook Sounds. Thank you so much to our featured guests, partners, and our listeners. Want to advertise with us? Email us at sexedwithdb at gmail.com. For more sex ed content, follow us on IG at Sex with Podcast and on TikTok at Sex with See you next time.